we can approach you now and on the last day of our lives or the last day of history and not be turned away, not rejected, but accepted by a holy God. I pray for anyone who's here who doesn't know Jesus yet, that he would awaken their dead hearts, open their blind eyes to see how they need a Savior and that Jesus is the only one who can save. Lord, as we open your word, I pray you would open our understanding to grasp better what you have said. And Lord, that our hearts would be ready and willing to do what you call us to do in response. So be moving among us by your spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Last Sunday, the Apostle Peter reminded us that in spite of the skepticism of scoffers and in spite of taking longer than we thought it might, Jesus Christ will return just as he promised. Our text for today tells us more about the Lord's return and some appropriate responses in light of that future event. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3 as we wrap up our study in this New Testament letter. 2 Peter chapter 3. The first phrase of verse 10 says this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Peter was there when Jesus said his return would be unexpected. If you want to turn over to Matthew 24, verses 42 through 44. Matthew 24, verse 42. Therefore, says Jesus, be on the alert. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Years ago, my parents' house in Florida was broken into The thief did not call ahead of time to set up an appointment. He did not send a note telling them he would be in the neighborhood on a certain night that week. He came unexpectedly when they had no idea that they would be robbed. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5 that it will be unexpected as well. 1 Thessalonians 5. Verse 2, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. Well, the day of the Lord will not only be unexpected, it will be cataclysmic. And the reason I picked that big word is because cataclysm means 
a large-scale and violent event in the natural world, an event that causes great damage or destruction, a sudden and violent upheaval. And that word seems to fit what Peter says in verses 10 through 13, back in Second Peter. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the current earth and heavens will be destroyed. Everything as we now know it will be burned up and dissolved. And in its place, there will be new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. The Apostle John uses that same language in Revelation chapter 21. If you want to turn to that. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So this world is only temporary. It is not going to last. A day is coming when all creation will stop groaning under the curse Read Romans 8, 18 and following. A day is coming when God's children will no longer groan under the effects of the fall. Things like death itself and pain and crying will pass away. And instead, we will experience fullness of joy in God's glorious presence forever and ever. That is the blessed hope. That's what Paul is talking about in Titus 2.13. Do you know this verse, Titus 2.13? Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Hope is confident expectation of future good that is 100% certain because God, who cannot lie, has promised it. And the reason it's called a blessed hope is because it is a hope that brings about true and endless 
happiness, and joy. Before we look at how believers are called to respond to these realities, let's look at verse 15 back in 2 Peter 3. Verse 15 says, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. So it's very similar to what we saw last week in verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And Peter mentions the Apostle Paul also writes this way. Go to Romans 2, verse 4. Romans 2, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So in his mercy... The Lord invites people to turn from sin and turn to him before it is too late. The time between the Lord's first visit to earth and his return to earth is a door of opportunity to repent and believe. But the day will come perhaps sooner than any of us think when that door will be closed. Years ago we had a really close connection in the Atlanta airport. We weren't sure we were going to make it. And the flight attendant reassured us that they don't close the door on the plane until two minutes before the scheduled takeoff time. As long as you board before that, you're okay. But once the door is shut, that's it. They will not let you on the plane. Well, we don't know when the Lord will return to earth. He already told us you're not going to know. And we sure don't know how long we have left on earth ourselves. Think of the rich man in Luke 12, who has barns were overflowing, builds, tears those down, builds new ones, and says, Soul, you have many goods stored up for many years to come. Eat, drink, and be merry. And that very night, God said, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. So we might think we have lots of time, but we don't know that. So don't presume on the Lord's mercy as if there's no urgency to think about. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1 and 2. Working together with him, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today, don't put it off. If God is showing you that you don't have this all-important issue settled yet, first of all, acknowledge, I am not in a good place with God. I'm not ready to stand before him on the last day. I have sinned against him by thought, word, and deed. I am disqualified from being accepted by him. 1 Kings 8.46 says, There is no man who does not sin. So that's all of us. So turn from sin, turn to Christ. Believe that his death on the cross, his 
blood that was shed is the only way God will forgive sin. There's no other way. And believe that his perfect righteousness is the only kind of righteousness that God will accept. Go to Philippians 3. Philippians chapter 3. In the first few verses, Paul's boasting about his credentials, his religious background. Verse 4, he says, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, what I can do, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is of the law or in the law, found blameless. So I'm a really good person and I've done all these religious things. So if anybody's going to boast like, I'm in good shape, God should accept me just the way I am, it's me. And then Paul says, but... Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I totally renounce that whole approach to God. And then he says in verse 9, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, the kind I used to depend on, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, showing he's mighty to save and able to keep all of his promises, including John 6, 37, that says, The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For those who are trusting in Christ, what kinds of responses would be appropriate in light of the Lord's return? Peter brings up the question in verse 11 along with one of the answers. So look at verse 11. Since or because all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So, in light of future events, we ought to be holy people. Holy means set apart, set apart more and more from sin, set apart more and more to God. J.C. Ryle in the 1800s said, Holy conduct is that which agrees with God's judgment in loving what he loves, hating what he hates, and measuring everything in the world by the standard of his word. Peter already addressed this in his first letter. If you want to go back to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 13. And again, the connection between the Lord's return and holiness. Therefore, verse 13, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter's basis argument is, you're not who you used to be. Don't live the way you used to live. In chapter 2, verse 9, he's going to say, you've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. So don't keep walking in darkness. Walk in the light. And closely related to that is godliness. 
heartfelt reverence for God, a desire to please and honor Him in our lives. And Peter touched on that in the second letter, chapter 1, verse 3, seeing that His divine power has granted to us, given as a free gift to us, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. And also closely related is in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. So make a serious effort in light of these future events to be found in peace with him and with his people. Spotless and blameless means that our character and reputation are above reproach. The Apostle John makes a similar connection between the Lord's return and how we live in 1 John chapter 3, if you want to turn over to that, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, or see, how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when we, He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. So knowing that Jesus is coming back, and that we will see Him, and that we will be like Him, has a purifying effect. It produces a desire to be holy. Second, we are to be expectant people. In 2 Peter 3, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which Righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent. So three times in three verses is the word look or looking. And it's not just this kind of looking, but the idea of looking forward to something. So think of how a kid looks forward to their birthday or students look forward to graduation or an engaged woman looks forward to her wedding day. It's more than just a mental agreement that a certain day is going to come in the future, it's a longing for that day to get here. There's a sense of anticipation and just, I can't wait. And that's how the New Testament talks about expecting the Lord's return. So here's a few texts. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 7 and 8. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 7 and 8. Second half of verse 7 says, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will conform you to the end, confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll go to Philippians 3. Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has 
even to subject all things to himself. And then also Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. And then last week we saw in 2 Timothy 4, 8, that a crown of righteousness will be given to those who have loved his appearance. So the Lord's return is not just a doctrine to believe in your head. It's not just something to argue about with your friends, about the timing issues. It's something to look forward to and to be expectant about. Well, what about the phrase hastening the coming of the day of God? Isn't the day already set? Well, here's, uh, I think, a helpful note from the ESV Study Bible. That does not mean, of course, that the Lord has not foreordained when Jesus will return. But when God set that day, he also ordained that it would happen after all of his purposes for saving believers and building his kingdom in the present age had been accomplished. And those purposes are accomplished when he works through his human agents to bring them about. Therefore, from a human perspective, when Christians share the gospel with others and pray and advance the kingdom of God in other ways, they hasten the fulfillment of God's purposes, including Christ's return. So, this isn't a perfect picture, but it might help. So, think of a dad telling his kids, okay, kids, uh, we're going to go to the zoo. And, of course, they're going to say, when? And he says, I won't give you a specific time, but I will tell you, we're not leaving until this house is cleaned up. So the dad has a specific time in mind. But in a sense, the kids hasten the time by meeting the preconditions of leaving. By cleaning the house, they're removing what's holding back, getting in the car and heading to the zoo. And there's something similar to that for us, go to Matthew 24, would be one example. Matthew 24, verse 14. Matthew 24, 14. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. So the Great Commission, of course, is go and make disciples of all the nations, all the ethnic groups, all the people groups bound by culture and language. That's the commission that we've been given. And the Lord says he isn't coming back till that message has been taken to all the nations. Or in Matthew 6.10, Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom Come. And so, by praying your kingdom come as a means of bringing about the kingdom and sharing the gospel both locally and globally, in a sense, we're removing some of the things that Jesus has told us are in the way of him coming back. And in that sense, in a human way, we're hastening his return. 
So if, if you have a better way to look at that, I would be glad to hear it. I think that's the best way I've seen it. Um, and so, again, we can sure talk about that. A third response that these verses call for is that we would be discerning people. Now, that's not a direct connection to the Lord's return in this passage, but other texts show us why it's important in light of the Lord's return coming closer that we exercise discernment. Go to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verses 3 through 5. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? First thing he says, Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be, whoops, I guess that's all we need for now. And then go to 23 through 25. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonder so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So Peter was there when Jesus said those things that as the time gets closer to the end, a lot of false teaching, a lot of false information out there. And so Peter devoted all of chapter 2 to warning us of the danger of false teachers. And now as he's wrapping up chapter 3 and the rest of his letter, he's touching on the importance of accurately distinguishing what is true from what is false. So let's look at three phrases where he does that. So back in 2 Peter 3, after mentioning that Paul has written about these kind of things, he says in verse 16, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter recognizes that Paul's letters are to be regarded as scripture. They carry the full authority of the word of God. And he also acknowledges that there's some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. I think all of us could say amen to that. We've stumbled across a couple of those. But there's a big difference between not being sure about what a tough passage means and deliberately distorting or twisting what Paul intended to say. So we need to be cautious. We need to be discerning. When you read or hear somebody say, well, what Paul really means, get your antenna up. Get ready to be a Berean. So just this week, saw an example on the briefing by Al Mohler talking about a bishop in England and saying, if you take Paul literally, that's contrary to the spirit of the gospel. Do you know how much twisting and distorting you have to do to get Paul to be against the gospel? You have to contort yourself 
to do the gymnastics necessary to get Paul to say something that's contrary to the gospel. He's the one who's bringing the gospel and says the gospel he preaches is the only one there is, and if anyone has a different gospel, which is not really a gospel, they're under God's curse. So who are you going to believe? Paul or this bishop in England saying, well, you really can't understand Paul that way. You need to take it this way. No. So not every claim is valid. And some of them aren't just mistaken. Some of them are dangerous. It leads to destruction, it says in verse 16. So one example Paul himself gives is in Romans 3.8. Romans 3.8. And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. So remember Paul saying, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. He'll get to that at chapter 5 and 6. People are taking that and they're twisting it, they're distorting it and turning it into, oh, why not do evil? Why not sin? Supposedly that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, no, they're twisting my words and what I'm teaching and their condemnation for that kind of twisting of what I'm teaching is just. They deserve to be condemned for mishandling my words. Which is why, of course, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, be diligent to show yourself a workman uh, that is not ashamed, rightly handling or accurately handling the word of truth. It matters how we handle the Bible. Verse 17, back in 2 Peter 3. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, I'm telling you all this, giving you heads up, be on your guard. Why? So that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men. So we're to watch out for potential dangers. Otherwise, if we're not careful, we might be carried away by error. So in the 4th century, there was a man named Arius. He denied the deity of Christ. Like the Jehovah Witnesses of our own day, he did not believe Jesus Christ was and is fully God. And listen to this description of Arius by a historian named Parker Williamson. Here was a bright, energetic, attractive fellow, the kind of citizen whom any Rotary Club would welcome, singing sea chanties in dockside pubs, and teaching Bible stories to the Wednesday night faithful, this was an immensely popular man. His story reminds us that heresy does not bludgeon us into unbelief. Bludgeon means beat you with a club. We are seduced. So, the point is, Arius looked like a great person. He was well-liked. He talked about the Bible. And Peter's saying, don't get carried away by such things. He's not speaking the truth. 
doesn't matter how good looking and how popular and how whatever this guy is, if he's not teaching the truth about Jesus, run, don't walk. And the rest of verse 17 says, oh, I'll just read the whole verse again. Therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, false teachers are coming, deception is coming, be on your guard so you're not carried away by the ear of men and fall from your own steadfastness, or ESV has, lose your stability. You get knocked off your feet by something coming down the pike that's not true. Don't do that. And again, look how important it is to keep your stability in Colossians 1, 21 to 23. Colossians 1, 21. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Wouldn't it be a great place to put a period and say, Amen, thank you, Jesus, you're doing that for me. And then he says, if, indeed, you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. You've got to stay steadfast. Do you see how connected it is? Just this week, I talked to our dear friend Scott Pittman, one of our international partners. He told me about a friend he's known for 20 years. Stayed in his home, part of his Barnabas team. Go get her, right, for missions. And the last time Scott talked to him, it's like, well, you know, I just... The Old Testament, there's some stuff in there I just can't believe and uh, put that together with how God is love. And, and so I just, just don't believe anymore. He didn't stay steadfast. He didn't keep his stability. He was carried away by error. He made shipwreck of faith. And the story's not over. I mean, he, God could turn him around this week if he wants to. Or maybe it shows... An example of 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have stayed with us, but they went out from us in order that it might be shown they were never really of us. It could be that, too. So steadfastness matters. And Peter's saying, be alert, pay attention, so it doesn't happen to you. And as we saw on New Year's Day... The God-prescribed antidote to being carried away and falling away is the next verse. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I won't go through that whole thing again. If you want to listen to it, it's online January 1st. The point is, growing in our relationship with Christ will enable us to be discerning People, so that we don't lose our steadfastness. Well, Peter knows he doesn't have much time left on this earth. He started the letter by saying, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So he knows his life's almost over. He's about to be martyred, as Jesus said he would be. So what's the last thing he wants to say 
before he leaves this world and signs off his letter. So let's look at the last sentence. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The hymn there is Jesus Christ. That's the last person referred to. So he's saying and praying, may Jesus Christ be seen and honored and praised as the great Savior and Lord that he is, both now as he writes that and now as we read it, and unto the endless ages of eternity. May he be glorified. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are worthy of glory now and forever. For who you are as the only Son of God, the only Savior and Lord that you are, we honor you and praise you and thank you this morning. I pray again for anyone who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior that you would grant them repentance and grant them faith that they might turn from sin and darkness and turn to you in the light, your marvelous light. Lord, you've said you're coming back. You promised it. You, you're, you said heaven and earth will pass away, that your words won't pass away. So this is going to happen. You are going to come back. The things we read this morning will take place. And you've told us how we are to be prepared for that and what we are to do in light of that. So I pray you would enable us that you'd work in us both to will and to do your good pleasure to be holy and to be expectant and to be discerning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to